A lot of people are like, why did Jews come to Mexico? Like, that's so random. You know, a real common denominator between the Mexican and Jewish cultures is both family and food. It's more bringing sort of what I find of the best of both worlds in one dish. People think of Mexican food as very heavy, but it's not. It's actually very fresh. My mission is to share the sweetness of Mexico. It was always this very delicious bread to share with family, to share with friends, and it was always ripped apart. I feel like a Mexican thing is to just be a lot more spontaneous, and we don't have that here. We feel like what we do is something that brings people together, and it kind of breaks barriers. So for me, it's about the people. It's about connecting to the people. I think that's what has made this journey very, very interesting. How, how people can connect to us and, and the flavors that we're offering. Welcome to Joy in Conversation, a podcast about Jewish history and culture. It's with scholars, but it's for everyone. I'm Dan and I'll be your host. Join me and find joy in conversation because, well, it's a mitzvah. Anyone who knows me can attest to the role that food plays in my life. Food is very important. The people closest to me know that because I remind them a little too often. Food is a very visible part of my life. Whether it's me in the kitchen at night, chopping vegetables and blending spices, to decompress after a long day, or creating a dinner party menu with my wife, before hosting friends and family, I get giddy at the thought of bringing people together to break bread, share conversation, and indulge in the melding of flavors, aromas, and community. Just ask my wife. My pantry is overflowing with spices that I've acquired from around the world. Visiting the souk is one of my favorite things to do when traveling. Open-air markets awaken my spirit, and I eagerly scoop up za'atar, sumac, cardamom, tea, and olive oil. It's a testament to how badly I want the sensation of being in the souk to return home with me. I've also been known to travel far and wide on weekends just to try a new bakery or deli. A love of food is something that I inherited from my mother. Throughout my life, she shared stories of food and the way it connected her to New York, to Jewishness, to family. Her grandmother, her nanny, was the matriarch of meals, and my mom lights up when sharing this. Talk of nanny's matzo ball soup can send my mom into flights of warm and fuzzy nostalgia. My dad's family also conjures feelings of love and belonging through food. My nana, my dad's mom, used to make me grape nut pudding. It was my absolute favorite dessert. I'd wait all year for a batch of this whipped treat, and I still cherish it today. What food and family offered me growing up was more than just calories and morsels. My parents are an interfaith couple, so the food I shared with them was a reflection of who they are, where they came from, and how they formed something new by mixing and blending. Our house was a product of seemingly separate ingredients coming together and forming something worthwhile, something worth loving. It was a place where traditions collided and were reinvented, and food was a part of this. And as I grew up and began traveling, seeking out worlds beyond the one I knew with my family, I found myself challenged to expand my consciousness and through food to expand my palate. 
So for me, food has always been about family and cultural fluidity. It's been about challenging myself to know more than what was immediately in front of me. Even though books and history and travel have shaped the way that I interact with cultures and how I seek out humanity, food is the most visceral way for me to feel an instant sense of connection and appreciation. So when my wife and I were recently in Northern California and we encountered a Mexican Jewish bagel shop, I felt an immediate sense of connection. I saw worlds coming together, forming something that dissolved boundaries and creating something delightful, delicious, and multicultural. I saw the vibrancy of people finding new ways to interact and be expressive. This made me want to know more about Mexico, about the Jews of Mexico, and about food and family and culture that have emerged through the movement and migration and melding of people in Mesoamerica. So I sought out people who could tell me stories, who were willing to share their stories, and who live at the intersection of Mexico, Jewishness, history, culture, and cuisine. In this episode, we'll hear from people in Mexico City, Chicago, Northern California, and New York City. We'll tour the streets of Mexico City and encounter the city's small yet vital Jewish community. We'll learn from bakers who bring their memories and family histories to their craft. We'll learn about people, place, food, and family. So enough waiting. Yalla, let's learn together. My name is Monica Uniquel. I was born in Mexico City. My parents were born in Mexico, but my grandparents from my father's side, they were Jewish immigrants from Ukraine. And from my mother's side, they were also Jewish immigrants from Lithuania. And they came to Mexico in the 1920s. How does Monica approach the study of history? What's her style? How does she go about engaging with the past in Mexico City? I have been researching about the Jewish history in Mexico, but in a special way, not in an academic way, but learning in the streets. I love to learn about history, about Jewish history in the old city of Mexico. I have been doing Jewish walking tours in the city for many years. More than it's it's more than 26 years now. That I would say it's my subject of expertise. <laughs> what I like very much is to learn about everyday life. I talk about when the immigrants came to Mexico, why they left their countries, why they came to this country. So it's Jewish history, but it's also the history of the of the city that the immigrants found when they arrived in Mexico. I love when people tell me their own stories and they, they get integrated to the next tour, because this is something that it's really alive because it has to do with the stories of the people. So uh, this tour is always growing and if I'm, I'm finding new stories every time because the same people that attend the tours Sometimes they tell me their own stories. Monica loves telling stories. She loves the history that she finds on the streets of Mexico City. But why did she come to this work? Why did it become her calling, her mission, her purpose? I think it's very important because there is a huge ignorance about 
Jews everywhere. At the synagogue that I lead, I direct as a cultural center, I try to show the diversity inside of the Jewish culture and community. Because I think it's important that when people get to learn about anything, they don't have so many prejudices or stereotypes. They learn about what it is. It is like every other culture with the good and bad, rich and poor, stupid and intelligent. And like you have everything in this community. So I think it's important to know because also we are part of Mexico history. And a lot of Mexican people think that Jews, we have to choose between being Mexican or being Jewish. And, and I tell them, do you want me to take one arm? Because I need both. So I think it's an important project to, to open the door because the synagogue is open every day and it's free and everybody can get in. So that has been my battle, my project. And I think it's important also to normalize that there is a synagogue, that there are Jews, because people think that Jews are a, myst a mystery, something closed, something mysterious. So if you normalize it, if you open it, if you talk about it like something very normal, then people see you as normal. I can tell you that doing the walking tours and opening the synagogue, it has been so joyful because people are grateful, because people enjoy it, because the, the, the place is so beautiful. So every time I go there, it's, it's joyful because I, I, I think to myself, this place is so beautiful. It, it was closed for decades and now it's open because I, I, I made that effort and that brings me joy because I don't know, there is something that uh, you can breathe inside of there that it's really magic. And what makes uh, me joy uh, joyful is that I can share all this with people that are enjoying knowledge in the streets because I love the area where I work. It's a fascinating area and I love to 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 get lost in the streets because there's always something there waiting to surprise me you know so walking in the streets finding new stories sharing the stories uh, sharing the place that i have been working for so many years uh, that makes me very very happy that makes me very happy to 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 share these stories with the people Let's get a glimpse into Monica's tours of Jewish Mexico City. If we were there with her, walking those streets, listening to her share the stories that she loves, what would we encounter? What would we see? What would we hear? What would we experience? What stories would she share with us? So we entered the first synagogue that was built in Mexico, and it was built by the Jews of Syria in 1923. Then we go to the streets and we walk uh, some uh, parts of Jesus Mary Street. That was the most Jewish street of all. So in that street were a lot of Jewish groceries, 
bakers, the moel, the shochet, the rabbi, the families, the workshop. So many things happened in that street that we walk Jesus Mary Street, but we also walk other streets. For example, there is a street called uh, Academia, and in number 10, there was a midwife. She was a Russian Jewish immigrant that she helped many women to bring their babies in Mexico. There is a public school that was a school of some Jewish immigrants, and I have some testimonies and pictures of that. In Academia Street, there is a kind of a tenement uh, house, but in Mexico, we don't have those like in New York. And we get into that uh, tenement and we speak about the immigrants that they live there. For example, there is a woman that used to serve Yiddish meals to the immigrants and they could pay later, not that same day, they had credit. And in that same place, there was a man that gave merchandise to the newcomers so they could sell the merchandise on credit. And also in that same place, there was memories of the Christmas and the piñatas and those Mexican uh, traditions that they never saw before they came to Mexico. And those places were very interesting because they shared that with people that were not Jewish, with people that were Catholic or Christian, uh, Armenian, Lebanese, uh, Spanish, and from other places of the Mexican countries. We also see a place where there was a workshop where immigrants used to make clothes, and another place where there was a baker. And we end the tour at the first Ashkenazic synagogue that is a beautiful synagogue that was a copy from a synagogue of Lithuania. And I was in charge with a team of restoring that synagogue because it was in a very bad situation. And we restored it and now it's a cultural center that I have been in charge of the cultural activities since we opened it. And that is my, my life project. <laughs> who exactly were these Jews who made their way to Mexico? Why did they leave their home countries? Where were they coming from? What drew them to Mexico? The first Jews that arrived in Mexico, they came from the Ottoman Empire in the 1900s, in the very beginning of the 1900s. And they had to leave because the young men had to go to the army. And it was a, a military service that was very, very dangerous. And it was necessary for the empire because they needed this young uh, male to, to fight for the empire that came to Mexico. Here I'm not talking about the Inquisition and the Spanish conquest, because that's another story. If we want to talk about the, the Jewish history of modern Mexico, the first Jews came from the Ottoman Empire in the 1900s. And then, and those were, in one side, the Sephardic Jews from Bulgaria, from Turkey, from Greece. They spoke Ladino or Judeo-Spanish. And on the other side, they were Syrian Jews from Aleppo and Damascus, and they spoke Arabic. So those were the first ones. And then in the 1920s came the Jews from uh, Ashkenazic countries, from Poland, Lithuania, Russia, Ukraine, Hungary, and Germany. 
the times of the war in the 30s and 40s, there was very, very few Jews that arrived in Mexico. And the reason is that Mexico was not very open with them. And that is something that we have to say because people think that Mexico was always open for everybody. And that is not true. It was very open for the Spanish refugees in times of the civil war, but not for the Jews in the same time. By 1930, there were about 10,000 Jews. So from those 10,000, they, they had children, and now we have been in 40 to 45,000 Jews in Mexico for many years. Most of the people settled in Mexico City, but there were people that settled in other places like Coahuila, Morelos, Guerrero, and other places. But when it was time of the education, for example, most of those people came to Mexico because in those places there was not a Jewish education. And it was also difficult to have kosher meat, for example. But there was a, established a community in Monterrey and Guadalajara that they are still today. And today, most of the Jews are also in Mexico City. I would say 90 or 95 percent. What were the relations like between Jews from the Ottoman Empire and those coming from Eastern Europe? The people of the Ottoman Empire, they were more traditionalistic, more religious. In the case of the Ashkenazim, there was a whole range of different ideologies. Uh, you could find people from very, very uh, religious, but you could find people that were completely anti-religious, that they were socialists from the right, from the left, even communists. And all those things have to do with the places they came from, because the Ashkenazim knew about the different revolutions. But the Syrian Jews, they didn't have that. They didn't have any revolutions and they were very, very traditional places. So that's why also they were separated in Mexico, because they couldn't get along between each other. They were very, very different, and also because of the language. One spoke Yiddish, and the other spoke uh, Ladino or Arabic. How did these different communities interact with Mexican society, the society that they encountered upon arrival? Well, when they arrived, everything was so different and so strange to them. What's interesting, for example, when they started to build synagogues, the synagogues were a copy of the synagogues they came from because they didn't want to forget because they missed them. They, they were like homesick. And then when they moved to other neighborhoods because they had more money, and it was like the second generation of synagogues, they didn't want to look to the past. They wanted modernity, prosperity, and look to the future. So that is one example, and they uh, built something much more modern. When they arrived, they, they wanted to eat whatever they knew that was their meals. Also, that was like uh, feeling familiar, so they started to recreate their meals. And at the beginning, it was completely traditional, like in the old home. 
And little by little, they started to introduce in the traditional meals also the Mexican food. So that was at, uh, something that happened with, with the time. At the beginning, they were not doing that. And they recreated, for example, the bread because they needed to have their own bread, not the tortillas. That was something that they didn't like at the beginning. But then they started to eat the tortillas, to eat pozole, to eat mole. But that happened with, with years, not at the very beginning. So they were introducing all these different things with the years. And most, mostly when they had Mexican kids that they were born in Mexico. And those kids, they wanted to be part of Mexico. As the years passed and generations of Jews were born into Mexican society, how did these subsequent generations adapt to and adopt Mexican culture and traditions? Every Jew that has a children party, they have piñatas. <laughs> so it's not a Jewish celebration, but it's a birthday celebration. So, yes, we have incorporated a lot of those things. For example, the piñatas in Mexico, they met them in the Christmas uh, parties. We don't do Christmas. I mean, that is not Jewish, and that will never be a Jewish celebration. But the piñatas, it's a Mexican tradition. And, for example, the mariachis, that is the music of mariachis. A lot of Jews, they love them and they bring them to their parties. So we've set the table with Monica's accounts of the history of Jews in Mexico. Now let's feast and learn more about the food and foodways within this community. Let's start in Monica's kitchen. What is she serving up on her table? We have two Shabbats because Friday evening is like a Shabbat dinner. And Saturday, we have a brunch, a Shabbat brunch. So Friday evening, we always have the same, and this is very Arabic, very Syrian, little dishes like a Russian salad, you know, potato and egg and carrot. And there is also another salad, beet salad. We have avocado with salt, like guacamole. We have a, a turkey breast, like to make sandwiches. And we have pickles and chicken with a little potatoes or whatever. And we also have baba ganoush and hummus. <laughs> so it's a mixture <laughs> of different things, but we always have the same. And we have pita bread and challah. And then on Saturday morning, it's a dairy, a dairy meal because we don't mix dairy and flesh. There is a smoked salmon and cheese and avocado and tomatoes and bagels and also baba ganoush and this anchovies with the, but the anchovies we put the onion and chile, green chile and lemon. We also have leaven and those kinds of things. On Friday, our lunch is 3 o'clock. We eat a very Arabic meal that is made of three different dishes that we mix together. One is white rice. The other one are uh, green peas made with uh, meat. 
And then this is very Arabic. It's like a soup that you mix mix with the with the rice and the and the peas. And it has lemon. It has kipe, meatballs, but the kipe. And it has yerba buena. This green. It's like peppermint. That is very Arabic. And all the Syrian families in Mexico every Friday they eat that. <laughs> so I'm Ashkenazic, but I like the Sephardic meals. I love them. After encountering Los Bagels in California, I went on a quest to seek out as many Mexican Jewish bakeries as I could throughout North America. What I didn't expect was to learn about Masa Madre, a Mexican Jewish bakery in Chicago. Lo and behold, one of the co-owners, Tamar, is Monica's daughter. My name is Tamar Fatka. I was born and raised in Mexico City. I guess I've been baking all of my life. I come from a Jewish family of mixed origins. My mom's parents come from Ukraine and Lithuania. And my dad's parents come from Aleppo, Syria. So I grew up eating a lot of Syrian food. Not that much Ashkenazi food, but my grandmother owned a bakery, so a lot of her cakes and sweets, I grew up eating that. I'm Elena Vasquez. I met Tamara while we were both studying fashion design. I also grew up in a family of passionate bakers. My my grandmother baked the most delicious cakes. My mother was always passionate about bread and cakes, so... Since I was very young, he was introduced to all this amazing food and all these recipes. Food was my calling, so I I went on to study culinary arts. So what are the origins exactly of Masa Madre? Tamar came up with the idea of opening up Masa Madre. So we decided to start it as a very small thing just to see how it would work out. So we started baking out of our homes. We actually started making sourdough bread. That's why our company name is called Masa Madre, which means sourdough in Spanish. How did Tamar and Elena decide what to bake at Masa Madre? Babka is a perfect bread because you can have it for breakfast. You can have it as like a celebratory cake. You can play around with the flavors inside, make it savory, make it sweet. It can do everything. We started shifting towards babka. Babka was a product that we made on the side. There was a lot of nostalgia with it. And we started playing around with these flavors that reminded us of Mexico City. The ingredients from Mexico City are are very pure and they're very good on its on its own. So it's not about mixing too many things, but just using the right ingredients that are fresh. Our first product that we did was the chocolate babka. And we're used to this chocolate in Mexico that it's more of a dark chocolate, not very sweet. I think our second flavor was the Mexican churro, which we decided to make with Ceylon cinnamon, which is the cinnamon that we use over there. It's a little bit sweeter, less spicy. It was sort of interesting to discover how some of these flavors were like a mix of cultures in themselves because chocolate babka might be very American. But at the same time, you think about like real chocolate, like where does it come from? And, you know, chocolate started in Mexico. Also, a cinnamon babka, you might find 
you know, it's like every Brooklyn bakery, but ours, it really tastes like a churro in a way. But then we started adding others like our cafe de olla babka, which is like a vanilla babka with a ganache that's infused with coffee and cinnamon and piloncillo. And then we have our tres leches babka, which all of these desserts and flavors that we play around, they're not fancy things in Mexico. They're just like the most common flavors that you would find there. My wife and I recently ordered challah and babka from Masa Madre. When looking at all the options, we selected the hibiscus za'atar challah. I was surprised to see hibiscus as an ingredient. So how did they come to include this in their challah? Why hibiscus? When Jews from Syria, for example, arrived in Mexico, they were used to making za'atar with tumac, and they couldn't find tumac in Mexico. So the the closest thing to that was hibiscus flowers, which are also red and also very like tangy and have a very similar flavor. So they started using hibiscus instead of sumac for the za'atar. We started bringing the za'atar that my husband's grandmother makes and adding it to the challah. Challah was always something that we had every Friday night and every Saturday morning in Mexico. Such a delicious challah. I loved it and it was something that you would kind of like pull apart, never cut into it. You always pull it apart with your hands and you eat it with all of those different things that were on the table. It might be guacamole or it might be hummus. My mom used to make challah as well in, in Mexico City. But she used to make it for Christmas. So when I was younger, I didn't even know that this challah was actually made for Shabbat. So it was a special bread that she would make every Christmas from scratch. We would bring like three to four loaves to my grandmother's dinner. When living and baking in Chicago, what exactly is it that Tamar and Elena miss about their lives in Mexico? For me, it would be family and family gathering. My family is very close, so I would I would see like my aunts and my grandmother and my cousins all the time, every week. And I think that's that's something that we definitely don't have here. But I think that and the food, I think the food over there tastes very, very, very good. Even though you can find a lot of good Mexican restaurants here, I think the produce over there, it's just out of this world. Like the fruits, the fruits and the vegetables, they just taste so, so good, so rich. I definitely miss, you know, just eating at my parents' house and not having to cook for myself and having, you know, like four courses on every meal and seeing my cousins and my friends and not having to plan so much because spontaneity is a thing that Mexico has that we definitely do not have here in Chicago. So what is the importance of food to them, especially as they're working to bring Mexican flavors to their customers in the United States? Food is always a way to get people interested in a different culture without being divisive. It's a way to get, you know, people to understand each other and see how how we can be together. The culture is very similar to 
what Jews did in whichever country they came from because it's a culture that really relies on community and on bringing people together a lot through food. There's always food in the table and there's always family around it. I wanted to know from Tamara and Elena, what's something exactly they love about the work that they do? A very rewarding part is meeting our customers and hearing also their stories about how they relate to our food. That's what motivated us, especially at the beginning when we would, um, people would come and pick up the bread from our houses and they would tell us stories about how their mothers or grandmothers used to make this bread and how, how they're going to enjoy it and their reactions. I think that's very, very fulfilling for me. This whole journey to learn more about the history of Jews in Mexico started when my wife and I visited Los Bagels in Humboldt County, California. So let's listen to Dennis Rael, the owner of Los Bagels in Humboldt County, California. I opened up Los Bagels in 1984, but previous to that, I opened up the first Mexican restaurant in the Netherlands called Cafe Pacifico in 1978. I don't think I'm trying to represent those two cultures. I think I'm just trying to share some of the things within those two cultures. That's what Los Bagels is, is continually trying to expand people's understanding and food and et cetera. You know, to me, so much a part of culture is food. I kind of look at what I do with Los Bagels. It's just been this great opportunity to get involved with the community and do outreach and support and do a variety of different programs. We do a lot of education through food and exposing people to that. So what exactly is Dennis's family history? How does he situate himself? How does he see himself in Mexican and Jewish traditions? Going back to, to my heritage, my mother was Jewish and my father was Latino. My grandfather originally came from Ukraine, came over here in 1917. And my father's family uh, is from New Mexico and has been there for, for generations. My Judaism is more a cultural Judaism. My mother was not very religious. Uh, when my parents were married, that was really considered an interracial marriage. And both families were kind of a little bit appalled at of my parents doing what they did. The older I get, the more I, I feel thankful for my parents for instilling in my brother and I the pride of being multicultural and to stand up and, and share that in whatever we do or just to be proud of that. How does this multiculturalism shine through at Los Bagels? We celebrate a variety of holidays and they're both Mexican and, and Jewish. And I always have this great image of during Hanukkah one year, we had a big display of menorahs and on this little kid bringing their parent in, their father in, this little girl bringing her father in and said, Dad, I want to get a menorah. And the dad's looking at her, like, what are you talking about? And she says, Dad, we don't have to be Jewish to get a menorah, you know? And, you know, that, that told the story right there, you know? You know, we give out free dreidels to all the kids and teach kids how to play dreidel and, you know, and the story of that. So in that sense, it starts spreading that out. We've heard from Monica, Tamar, and Elena share what they had growing up on their tables. 
So what kind of food did Dennis have on his table growing up? What's the food that he was served, that he remembers, that brought him into conversation with Judaism, Mexican culture, and his family? My mother was a, a big cook. Majority of my mother's family was on the East Coast, and we would go back there periodically. She grew up in Philadelphia. It was a regular thing to have bagels in the house periodically and then to maybe go that evening to my grandparents have and have enchiladas and Mexican food for dinner. It was just all, all part of that. In what ways does Dennis connect his family history to what it is that he's doing at Los Bagels? My grandfather was able to come up and visit Los Bagels before he, he died. And so I got to share that experience with them. One of the bagels that are right now are named, it's called the Grandpa Goran. When my grandfather was up visiting, I really wanted to name it after him, and he was incredibly insulted because according to what he was saying was Jewish tradition, you never name something after somebody who's alive. So I had to wait till he died and, uh, you know, call it the Grandpa Goran. My family's from the Northeast. I've spent my life living in New England, but my family spent generations living in Brooklyn. So I wanted to include someone who was bringing Mexican-inspired food to New York City. Let's meet Fanny Gerson. My name is Fanny Gerson. I'm a pastry chef, entrepreneur, and book author. <laughs> and I have a company called Fan Fan Donuts that is a donut shop. And then I have another company called La New Yorkina, which means the girl from New York. We do Mexican popsicles called paletas, ice cream, sweets, churros. My family from my father's side immigrated from Ukraine to Mexico, so we're both Mexican and Jewish. Culturally, I feel Jewish. I think that there's a lot of parallels in both Latin cultures and Jewish cultures in the sense that they're both very family-oriented. There's a lot of symbolism around the certain types of foods and around the table and gatherings. You know, like in Mexico, we have a special bread we make for Day of the Dead. And, you know, for Jewish New Year, we make challah bread. How exactly do Mexican influences make their way into Fanny's work in New York City? So at La Niorquina, for example, you know, I make Mexican-inspired rugula. These are not rugula that I, that I grew up with, but it's sort of like my own cultural blend that happened when I immigrated to, to the U.S. You know, so I do like a cherry chipotle, a coconut pineapple. For Passover, I make caramelized masa with Mexican chocolate on top. It's incredible. <laughs> I could eat that all year round. At the donut shop, I do take on like the hamantaschen for Purim, so I do donutaschen. People's relationships with Judaism and Jewishness vary quite a bit. So how has food helped Fanny connect to Jewishness? I did not grow up in a traditional Jewish household or didn't go to a Jewish school or anything like that. So uh, to me, it's been an exploration through through food of what that means. You know, and now as, as a mom, you know, I try to, you know, be like, okay, I didn't grow up with certain traditions, but now we create these new ones that are part of these sort of two worlds, you know, blended, and that's going to be part of, of, of his identity. And then he's probably going to have a different layer. But I think that's sort of what makes 
people and world richer and, and open minds. And I think that it's very important to have the, those conversations. It's very sort of non-judgmental and it's very not one-sided. And it's something that uses a lot of your different senses. When it comes to food, it's about making it. It's about enjoying it. It's about sharing it. How does Fanny see food and community intersecting in her life and in her work? In Mexico, we have this term that's called sobremesa, and the, the name refers to the lingering that goes on after the meal. And when people ask me what I miss about Mexico, that is one of my top three things that I miss. It's sitting down, and it doesn't matter. It's not so much about the food. Of course, that's delicious, <laughs> no matter what. But it's really about whether it's your family or your friends. That's your community, right? So. You share that, you share those moments, and I think that those are so, so special. Why exactly does Fanny do this work? And why does she bring it to her customers in New York City? I think it's to transport them, whether they've been to Mexico or they're from there. Just sharing this beautiful and rich part of the culture that we have. And it's about storytelling. So it's something that I love, that I want you know, that I hope people are excited about. I want them to experience joy, first and foremost. Joy and excitement. You know, that's it. Like, that's, that's sort of like at the essence. Fanny is also an author. So why does she write her cookbooks? And what does she hope her audience will experience through them? My intention is to document to give continuity, because for the most part, a lot of these traditions are oral ones, meaning they're passed down from generation to generation. There's not a lot of written content, you know, or books or anything, and people are very protective of them. That's like their most prized treasure. So if I can capture a bit of the essence of that, maybe some of these traditions won't get lost. You know, I'm not here to rescue them. I'm I'm trying to highlight them to give continuity, to give them new life. Sometimes we look elsewhere for inspiration or for answers, but really you, you just have to start looking from within. Fanny is a mother. So what does she like to cook with her son? And why is it important to cook with her son? I knew the first thing that I wanted to make with him was tortilla, corn tortillas. That was important to me because I feel like food is going to be the way... The, perhaps the easiest way for us to connect him on a daily way to, to his roots. It's just really magical to experience it with him. Whether you're in Mexico City, Humboldt County, California, Chicago, or Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, let's hope that there's tortilla, chocolate, family, and friends nearby. Yella, let's break bread together. Special thanks to Monica, Tamar, Elena, Dennis, and Fanny. It was a real treat talking to all of you. If you're interested in learning about Monica's work in Mexico City, Masa Madre in Chicago, Los Bagels in California, or Fan Fan Donuts and La New Yorkina in Brooklyn, check out the show notes where you can find links to all their incredible work. Thanks, as always, to Nico Rivers for music supervision, as well as mixing and mastering during conversation. To learn more about Nico's work as a composer, visit nicorivers.com. And to learn more about his work in film and audio production, visit auraformaudio.com. That's A-U-R-A-F-O-R-M-audio.com. Alec Hudson is responsible for our graphic design and Klezmer theme song. 
To learn more about Alex's designs, visit warbirdcreative.com. And for his music, visit alechudson.com. Our website design is by Jacob Lazar. Our episodes feature music by the Boston-based Sephardic band, Voice of the Turtle. The group is no longer active, but their music is on Spotify, and their website remains a trove of Sephardic sounds. Listen and learn more at voiceoftheturtle.com. We also feature the music of Ezekiel's Wheels. Thanks to the band and Abigail Reisman for making that happen. Learn more about Ezekiel's Wheels at ewklesmer.com. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for making high-quality music available to creatives everywhere. And thanks to you, our audience, for your time and curiosity. Stay engaged with Joy and Conversation by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice and by visiting our website, joyandconversationpodcast.com. And remember, Joy and Conversation is now the audio experience for Project Mosaics, an education nonprofit dedicated to promoting humanities education that elevates and centers Jewish histories, cultures, arts, and identities through the creation of digital multimedia content in order to illuminate the plurality of Jewish voices and experiences from around the world for classrooms right here at home. Consider donating to Project Mosaics to help us create content for teachers and students that is multicultural and culturally affirming. Support Project Mosaics and help us connect the pieces of Jewish history. Okay, Bushufaku. We'll see you next time.